Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Good. I actually do mean that. I want to know how you're doing. Um, my name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church. Thank you so much for joining us to worship. Whether you're a member here or new, just visiting, um, we're so glad you're here. And our hope is that you will um, learn what it means to be united to life in Christ. That's our mission um, here at Portico. And so we are going to um, open up Romans 8 as we have been for the last couple months or so. And Romans 8 is essentially what it looks like to live life in Christ. And so everything from the beginning of the chapter where we looked at no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning that we have been pronounced righteous by God, that we have come out of the courtroom and into God's living room. He has adopted us as his children. And then he fills us with the Spirit and what it means to walk by the Spirit and to live by the Spirit. And for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the context of our life in the Spirit. So what kind of life are we living? And the context of our life is filled with suffering, and it's filled with groaning. We're living in a world that's been subjected to futility and that longs for redemption. And so coming out of that and finishing up kind of this section Paul is going to finish with one of the most grand and beautiful promises that the Bible contains. And so we are going to be just looking at one verse today because it's way too much for us to even study for the rest of the year. So we're just going to take 25 minutes today and try and digest a small piece of it. And it's a verse that many of you probably are familiar with if you've been in the church for any period of time. Um, you're going to be fairly familiar with this. And if you haven't, then this is going to be really overwhelming because it is a massive promise, and it's going to be really hard to believe and know that you're not alone. It's hard for everybody to believe. So if you hear this and you're like, yeah, that sounds nice, but I just don't know if I'm there, you're in the right spot. So the verse what we're looking at is Romans 8, um, and it's verse 28. Let me read it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, all things working together for good. We might be able to believe some things. We might be able to believe that, um, that some of our our circumstances in life are producing good, but all things, Lord, is so, is so much. Um, so God, we need your help this morning. We need your help to open our hearts to make us receptive to this promise and all of the ways that we doubt it, all of the ways that we, um, that we disbelieve because we can't comprehend it. And so, Lord, open our minds, open our hearts, and show us your goodness and the goodness that you have for us here in this verse. Um, Lord, I pray for those who are hearing this for the first time, that they, would, that they would see your heart in redemption and in making this world new, transforming it, every, every square inch of it. And Lord, for those of us who are familiar with this, I pray against kind of a coldness that can develop 
and I ask that you would um, that you would enliven our hearts, that we would that we'd embrace this again freshly here this morning, and that we would um, live transformed and joyful lives as a result. Pray this all in Jesus' name, Amen. So I, um, before working for the church, I was a counselor, and one of the things that counselors do is for people who are have been in suffering or have been in a traumatic experience or event, is we help people process that. And part of that processing is finding meaning in the event. And so if something really bad happens, one of the ways of kind of removing yourself from the stuckness that a really traumatic event can cause is to find some type of meaning in it. And so, you know, this is really helpful, practical, um, practical wisdom, is that if you can identify some purpose for what you suffered, it helps make sense of things. And then you're able to kind of move on, and you're able to open yourself up to what the rest of your life has for you. Now, you're never the same, but you're kind of transformed. And what I found as a counselor is that there were some things that were just so traumatic, so hard to wrap your mind around, that we just didn't have the imagination to come up with something that would make meaning out of it. It was hard to imagine something that was good enough to be worth the cost of, of the suffering. And so something that we are tempted to do when we're looking at this verse is we're gonna be tempted to want to know all of the details. And if we don't know all the details of how this is true, then we're going to be tempted to not believe it. And so I want us to all jump back a couple verses to remind ourselves of something. And that something is that in verse 26, we say, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Well, how are we weak? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know the details to ask God. We don't know what to ask God for. And so we have to study here this verse, and we know in the context of what we don't know. And so you have to hold on to both of those. We don't know a lot of the details, but we do know this, and it's God's promise, and it's rooted in his character. And so to kind of help us unpack this verse and hopefully understand what it actually is saying and what it's not saying, what it means and what it doesn't mean, how to apply it and how not to apply it. We're going to go through four questions. The first is, who does it work together for? So who does this apply to? Does it apply to everyone or are there limits? The second thing is, what exactly is it that's working together? What is working together. The third question is how is it working together? So what is the destination? What is the final product of all this working together? And then the fourth question, and probably the most um, assumed, but also the most important, is who is working it together? Um, that you think one thing, and then you read it, and you're like, oh, who is working together? All, all this. Okay, so let's, let's start off by saying, who does it work together for? And you see this bracketing the verse. 
There's one answer at the very beginning and another answer at the very end. In the beginning of this verse, we see that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then it's at the end, for all those who are called according to his purpose. So two different perspectives, same group of people. So from one perspective, from our perspective, from our experience, is that when we love God, that's confirmation that this promise belongs to us. And then from the divine perspective, from God's perspective, it is he who has called us according to his purpose. And when we're called, we love him. And everyone who loves him has been called. So that puts a question in front of all of us. Everyone who reads this, this is a huge promise. Maybe one of the most important things after is it true is does it apply to me? And so to answer that question, you have to ask yourself, do you love God? What does that mean? What does it mean to love God? What does it mean for me to love God? Well, it's always going to be attached to the greater context of Romans 8. And so Paul has just kind of developed this amazing imagery of everyone who is in Christ then being filled by the Spirit. And the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit that fills you and helps you love God. And so how do you, well, how do you get in Christ then? You are found in Christ when you trust him. When you hear what he has done for you, his life, the penalty he's paid for you with his death, and the future he gives you with his resurrection, when you hear that and you embrace it, and you leave all other pseudo-saviors behind you, then you're found in Christ. You're found in Christ, and this belongs to you. And loving God is simply learning to care about the things he cares about, loving his people, being transformed and renewed by his word, and just a warm affection and appreciation for what he has done, who he is, and what he's continuing to do in this world. All of those things are ways that we express love for God. So here is why this is actually incredibly beautiful. Because the promise is for those who love God. It's not for the most moral people, the most knowledgeable people, the most privileged people, the smartest people. In fact, it's more likely to be for the opposite of all of those. No, this is for the undeserving. That's, that's a prerequisite to being found in Christ, as you realize you don't deserve the promise. It's for the unworthy. It's for the people who know that they need Christ, that their life is not good enough, that they need Jesus to stand in their place. It's for the people who are messy, who don't have it all together. And it's for the people who are just continuing to stumble forward. The promise is for you. So clearly we don't earn it. Clearly, we don't earn it. And then the second aspect of, is this, of, of this perspective is those who are called according to his purpose. So we are called from something and into something else. That's kind of implied by the language of called. 
And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that we are called out of darkness into light, out of death into life, out of alienation into fellowship, out of rebellion and into communion. So that's what's happening when God calls us, and that's how it produces love in us, right? It's like, which is greater? I don't know, alienation or fellowship? That's not a hard question. (laughs) So that is what it means to be called, and his purpose is to conform us or to make us more and more like Christ. He wants to make us beautiful just as Jesus was beautiful. So Jesus was righteous. He was purely pure and innocent. His intentions were always about loving and serving other people instead of building himself up. He hated unrighteousness, but he never hated people. And so God's call is to repurpose us from our previous position and standing more and more into his image and the image of his son. So that's who it's for. So this is, um, this is just going to linger as a question for you guys. It's like, do I love God? That's a really good question to ask yourself. And what does that mean? And how does Jesus factor into the answer? It's a really good question to ask yourself. Okay, so second thing is what exactly is working together? So this is obvious. It's all things. God works all things together for good. So here's what this isn't saying first. This is not what's known as Pollyannaism, where it's like everything is good. So if you just think positively, this is like positive psychology. So if you just think positively about something bad, it'll turn it into something good. That's not what this verse is saying. It's basically assuming the opposite. It's assuming that because it's not good, it has to work to becoming good. So it's acknowledging that real evil exists and not everything is good, that there are real bad things that happen. And that is included in all things that are working together for the good. It also includes good things. So it's not just bad things, but in the context of kind of Paul's flow, he's emphasizing the suffering. He's emphasizing the evil of this world, that God is working together for good. So in, here's an illustration of, what, um, of how this works, because this, is, this gets a little bit confusing. How can something bad be worked for something good? It's like, are we saying that the means are justified by the end? No, that's not what we're saying. Here's an illustration of this. It's, pretty, it's a pretty common one um, from, from the Bible. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers because they, he was essentially like the bratty younger brother, and they were just sick of him, so they sold him into slavery. And so he goes and essentially ascends to power and is in charge of kind of like provisions for a land that's under famine. And so his brothers have to kind of, they don't know that they're coming to Joseph, but they come because they need food and they're about to die. And they are like waiting and then they see it's Joseph who's in charge of dishing out the food. And they're like, oh no. They start groveling because they realize they are at his mercy. And Joseph realizing what's going on, he says, brothers, you meant it for evil 
but God meant it for good. So you have one event with two different intentions. The brothers intended that event for evil. They were trying to harm Joseph. And God, just with his omniscience and his ability to move history, meant it for good. And so Joseph was able to see that, but that was after a long time. He wasn't aware of the details. So as it was first sold into slavery, he wasn't saying like, oh yeah, God means us for good. <laughs> no, that's not, what, that's not how it works. Um, so one event, two intentions. God working all things to good. This is all-encompassing. So it's both big events and small events in your life. We like to just look at the big events and how this happens in like major events in our life, and it does in those events, but it's also happening in the day-to-day nitty-gritty monotony of getting up and going to work Monday through Friday, of getting up and changing diapers seven days a week. God is working all of that. He so cares about the small details of our life that the tiniest little events, he's working towards our good. So it's all things working together. And then how is it working together? It's working together for good. So another way to think about this, because these prepositions are really difficult for us to kind of dissect and grab meaning out of. For good is essentially another way of saying towards good. God is working it towards good. It's not finished. It's not something that is necessarily material. And man, I, we live in one of the, probably the most materialistic societies in the history of the world. So if you think that you haven't been impacted and that part of your heart doesn't desire a material fulfillment in the here and now of this promise, then you might be blind to it. And so here's what it can look like. It can look like it doesn't have to be about money, but it, a lot of the times it is. It can be about power. It can be about status. It can be about your relationship with other people. It can be about the type of job you have. And so if some of these desires that you have for good things, they become too intense, when you don't get them, you think that either God doesn't care about it, or you think that God isn't actually paying attention or that he's not able to. But a lot of times what we'll do is we'll just say, okay, we'll redefine who God is. Because now, because I didn't get this thing, I have, to make, I have to make a God who's way far away, who's disconnected and detached from this world, and he's just kind of set up this world and he's just watching and he's not involved. And I think that's what we do a lot of the times. When we're, when we're severely disappointed, when we're in the midst of suffering, it's really hard to see where God is in that. And so here's, a, here's, here's what you don't do with this verse. Don't go to somebody who's in that time and season of suffering and pain and say, oh, didn't you know that God's working this for good? Like, that's not helpful in the moment. This is a promise that we can kind of build a foundation out of. But what it enables us to do is it actually enables us to properly lament. It actually enables us to cry out, to mourn. 
And so don't try and with yourself or other people, don't try and short circuit the experience of pain and suffering by saying, oh, well, you know, God's working this to good, so it doesn't really matter. No, it does. It matters deeply. And it actually only matters because he is working it for good. And so this actually enables us to push into lament in a more confident way, where we don't have to pull up short of the depths. Because when we do, when we, when we go there, we find a God who is there working. And now we're not going to be able to see the end result because we're finite. That's one of the things that the Spirit intercedes for us for. But he's there, and he will meet you there. So it's working together for good, and a lot of the times it doesn't feel like it. Here's a, um, I couldn't use this in the first service because there's too many people who knew about this book, and it's a really difficult book. So this, this book is a kid's book, and I like to order books for my little girls to help them know like, about who God is, and the book was called The Moon is Always Round. So it's like, oh, this, that sounds like a great book. Well, it's about something really bad happening. And I didn't know this at the time. And so I'm like sitting there reading it to my daughter, and I'm like starting to tear up. And I'm like, oh, I can't finish this book. This book has to end. But the premise of the book is that throughout the book, this little boy is being taught by his dad that the moon is always round. Even when it doesn't look round, the moon is round. And so you can only see a sliver of it, but the moon is always round. So he's kind of like teaching his boy about this, and then the really bad thing happens, and, you know, Anyways, I can't even talk about it or else I'll start crying. But the, the dad is able to convey that God is always good, even when, and sometimes especially when, it doesn't look like it, because the circumstances of your life are just totally upended. And so having that knowledge that God is always good and we are moving towards that, helps us kind of endure, helps us grab hold of this promise and really receive it instead of just using this promise as a way to sugarcoat things that we don't want to think about. So that's how it's working together. It's working together for good, and it's more beautiful than we can even fathom. And then this biggest question is who is working it together? And so I'm going to nerd out a little bit on the English grammar um, because it's important there is not really a useful subject in this sentence. So a sentence is subject, verb, object, and basically. And the subject of this sentence seems to be all things. All things work together for good, right? How does that make any sense? All things, that's like inanimate context. That's things that don't have a mind, that don't, they're not able to come alive and do anything together. So Paul actually wants us to ask that question and say, how can it be that all things are working together for good? And now I'm gonna talk about how kind of our culture will probably answer this question, and then we'll see how that compares to, to knowing that God is the one working it together. I would, I would venture to say that if you ask most people in our immediate surroundings, like, oh, what is in charge of the details of your life? 
So like, when something happens, who do you thank? When something bad happens, who do you cry out to? And it's said in jest, but it carries weight. It's the universe, isn't it? You guys have heard this. It's like, oh yeah, the universe just gave me a raise, or the universe just made me stub my toe, or whatever. So in some ways, I understand that, because I think people are trying to, they're trying to um, talk about something that they don't really have language for. So they're trying to convey some type of fate or some type of controlling principle that makes meaning in the world. And so they say the universe is a say of what, as a way of saying like everything's kind of safe. Like God can be the universe, your higher power, my higher power. All of that can be contained by the, by the words of the universe. But isn't that just deeply unsatisfying? The universe is abstract. The universe is kind of cold. It's big, but it's not warm. It's not personal. And so for us, when we see God, who is the sovereign God, ruling over the heavens and the earth, our God is seated in the heavens doing all that he pleases, according to Psalm 115, and then we see what he's pleased to do. <laughs> it's to work everything together for good. And this is a personal God. This is a God who is both big enough to get the job done and personal enough to know the smallest details of all of our lives. And he's weaving that all together. And he's doing that as he expresses himself as Trinity. The Father, God the Father, planning all of this from eternity, knowing to call people to love him, planning out the details of how he's going to make everything work out for good. And then the Son, God the Son, who is actually sent into the world that's subjected to futility. This isn't the universe. This is a person who took on flesh, gave up everything to come be with his people, and make the way for this to actually happen. Because you see this illustrated perfectly in Jesus' life. Jesus coming as the Son of God, taking on human flesh, and then being held accountable for things that he did not do. Jesus, if you look at his life as it's described in the Gospels, it's beautiful. He is serving constantly. He's not arrogant. He's humble. He is always trying to include those who are pushed aside and cast out. He's lifting up. He's healing. He is making good happen. And what do his people, us, what do we do with him? We creatively concoct the most painful and torturous way that we can think of to kill him. And we mock him. This is the most evil event of all time. And yet it's a perfect example of how God is making things work together for good. Because though the event was evil, God and Jesus himself intended it for good. And he intended it for our good. 
And that's the offer that we have to love that God. And then even more than that, Father and Son send the Spirit into the here and now to be with us in the midst of this life that's subjected to futility. And the Spirit actually gives us kind of the first taste of what it's going to look like for all things to finally be made good. And we experience that in our lives. We experience that primarily in just how we relate to God. That now we love God. Now we're alive to God. Now we have communion with God. And then how we relate to each other as well. Barriers are torn down. People who hate each other now love each other. And they're united together by Christ's blood. So the Spirit is with us doing that. And so you see this magnificent work of God to work everything to our good. And it's God's work. We, we just receive it. Isn't that frustratingly difficult to believe that you are the recipient of this promise that everything is working together for good and you receive that? But that's what we're told to believe here. That's what we need to push into and believe more and more. And we do that throughout our entire lives. So with, with something this big, it can be really hard to kind of like get this to pierce the everyday life that we all live. It's like, this is great. And then you go out and you have to, you know, sit behind a car that's driving too slow on the highway. So like, how does that help us? And so I want to give us a couple of different things where this can actually apply to our lives. And the first one is that it's pretty simple. We just imitate God. If you love God, imitate him by using everything in your spheres of influence to bring about good, to work towards good. Now, it's going to be really limited compared to God. <laughs> you can't do all things and make all things work together for good, but you do have influence where you can actually become a true image bearer of God to your neighbor, to your family members, to your spouse, to your roommate. And you can actually leave what one pastor calls an aroma of heaven wherever you go. Because what you just did by using everything that you had to bless to bring about good in someone else's life, that's our expectation of what heaven's going to be like. And so do that. And here's a way to do it. Let God define what's good. So don't try and make up good based on your own desires. Don't try and make up what is actually good by the world's definition of good, because then we're going to start working towards materialism. And that doesn't have transformative power. Instead, let God define what is good. And if you just want like a really easy takeaway of what is good, well, good is loving God and loving others. How do we do that? Open up the Ten Commandments and don't just look at what it says not to do, but then all of those things open up what we should do and how we can love others and how we can love God. So instead of stealing, be generous. Instead of committing adultery, be really faithful and tender and caring. Instead of bearing false witness, encourage and build up. So 
That's God defining what good is and us letting him do that. And then secondly, mourning and lamenting all that is evil in this world. So we have this wonderful foundation of this promise. It's, the promise is essentially a container for us to be able to enter into suffering and pain and lament it and know that that is not our final destination. So it's lamenting, but it's lamenting and mourning with hope. It's mourning and lamenting with an expectation that God is going to hear and receive this. And we see this beautifully in Revelation where God actually hears the prayers of all of his people who are martyred and the imagery that we get is this like incense coming up to him are the prayers of the martyrs and he answers those prayers. And so when we mourn, when we lament, it's pleasing to God. And we have fellowship with him. So don't, don't make up meaning. Don't try and figure out all of the ways that God is working. Instead, just lament. And lament with hope. And then finally, if all of this is true, if this, is, if this promise, promise is true, and we can trust it, and you love God and it applies to you, then treasure this. Treasure Jesus. Don't neglect your faith. Don't take it for granted. But treasure it. And one of the ways we do that is just by worshiping together. But then that worship extends us to every aspect of our lives. So we get to love God with everything that we are. And that is actually going to help us believe this. Because I'm with, like, I'm, I'm with you guys. I, I struggle with cynicism as much as the next person. And especially in our world right now, it's an easy narrative to believe. But by believing this just a little bit more today, and then taking that into your life and treasuring Jesus with everything you have, that's going to start to chip away at that cynicism and help you actually own this promise. So let's pray together to end, because we're going to need a lot of help to do all of that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you, um, that you don't just wind up this world and let it go. That you, don't, that you don't allow people who have wicked intentions to have the final say. Lord, and that you don't just leave us um, with nothing to hope in, but that you've actually given us your word, that you've given us knowledge of this promise that we, can, that we can cling to and that we can come to you from a posture of hope even in our darkest nights. And so, Lord, I ask that you would also make us grateful for all of us who, who are loving you, that we can know that this promise is for us and that that will transform our week, that we will actually see how you are remaking this world and that you are working all things together for good. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.